The Centennial Park is a glorious natural depression with high land all around it and within its area, enabling one in one kudoi to view a landscape which is a dream of beauty, a balm to jaded nerves, and inspiration to the aesthete, be he poet or artist. Joseph Maiden, The Forest Flora of New South Wales, 1917. You've got to have a, a good breathing space in a city, and this is uh, the best we've got. You know, this is all we've got. Uh, where would we breathe otherwise? Now, I'm living in a house that I admired as a boy. <laughs> I used to come out here with my dad, who was in charge of public transport, buses and trams, of course, which came out here in those days. And uh, I used to come out with dad to look at the show. And then the show didn't change from year to year, so I wandered around the area. So you moved here in 69 to this house, but yes. prior to that, as a boy, you went to the park. What year? What sort of decade would that have been? Well, this would have been uh, probably in the 40s. <laughs> yes, I have a memory, for example, of uh, the eastern side of Moore Park, what's known as Moore Park East from Anzac Parade to Driver Avenue, being covered with cricket pitches, uh, probably about 20 on, and they uh, were a delightful sight. Uh, cricket was being played on all those pitches. We're in the living room of a former professor of economics at UNSW, Neil Runcie, and we're sheltering from a rainy day. His beloved park is just outside. In the 1970s, Neil Runcie spearheaded the Save the Parks campaign. He mobilised local residents, famous authors, academics, schoolchildren and the Builders' Labourers' Federation to join together and fight off a proposal to turn the park into an Olympic site. 
the price of parks is eternal <laughs> vigilance. And I think that this requires constant attention if you value open space. There are developers trying to get their hands in all the time. Yeah, I lived here for 40 years, right on the park, and I suppose my major involvement has been with the Save the Parks campaign, which was organised to fight the proposals for Olympic complex in the area that uh, Tom Lewis as Minister for Lands launched. The main stadium would have gone into Centennial Park, the swimming pool complex would have been at Allison Road End, and uh, the main stadium would have extended across the Robertson Road playing fields. For the first time since the 1970s, Neil Runcie has met up with his comrade-in-arms, the secretary of the Save the Parks campaign, Keith Jordan, and his wife, Jean. Jean Jordan's family association with Centennial Park dates back to Federation in 1901. My name's Jean Jordan and my um, knowledge of the park really comes from my mother's family, my mother particularly, and they had lived nearby so it was always part of the family stories. When mum was a, a little girl, she was born in 19. 11. They used to play in the park. The children used to go and play. They were allowed to go as far as one of the statues that was called One Last Shot. Oh you know, there were quite a few statues that had, someone had brought from, the, from America celebrating the Civil War or something. Uh, so that the, the children were allowed to go that far and no further. But as you know, there are lakes and they'd, they'd go in, I guess. And um, there was a plank that went across one of these creeks and, you know, Mother apparently walked across it and, and wobbled and fell in and couldn't swim, but she knew it had to put her arms up, so, you know. And I think Mum had also had a feed of acorns that made her very sick. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember um, Sandy talking about... They used to make canoes out of corrugated iron oh, and right. they used to weld the, the ends of it together with bitumen and bolts and what have you, yes. and they'd sink. <laughs> <laughs> and when we did move here, we regarded it as our front yard... I think one of the delightful things about the park is that the people that use the park consider it to be their park. <laughs> and I think that's been a great thing for us when we were involved with Neil and, and so forth, looking at getting people to take an interest in it. It wasn't difficult to, to get a, a group of people to, to support anything that, uh, that Neil and co were, were, were organising. The proposal to turn the park into an Olympic site was a classic example of the mood for development of the New South Wales state Liberal government at the time. And in turn, it was responded to with vigour by a public recently awakened to environmental issues. The Builders Labourers Federation got involved. Over the early 1970s, they'd applied their muscle with green bands, boycotting over 40 developments, including the Centennial Park plans. I think Australians uh, generally consider developing perhaps the most important attribute. And, and at that point in time, there was a huge effort to pull down a number of major buildings in the city. The Queen Victoria building, it had to go, it was a waste of space, it was just run down and we didn't need to have that sort of thing anymore. And so 
the the Green Bands just became a huge rallying cry, and the the Builders Labourers Federation were, as far as I was concerned, were God because they were actually doing something. Everybody was talking, but they were they were in a position to do something, and they were doing things, and they were stopping. They were stopping the wholesale destruction of the rocks area. Yes, which would have been a really sad loss to the city. So what you had was government and developers against unions and people? Yes. Is that a bit obvious? Oh, yes, unions and people. I'm sure that the people were pushing for these things and that the BLF or the, the unions responded, responded to that. Responded to that concern. Yeah. Mm. Yes. I, I think the Green Band was very important. I have great respect for the three leaders of the BLF, uh, Jack Mundy, Joe Owens and uh, Bob Pringle. Uh, they were three outstanding men uh, with an environmental conscience. Neil, the Save the Parks campaign, to my way of thinking, was basically a fairly small front organisation that could uh, muster a huge crowd over any issue that became important with regard to Centennial Park. Am, am I right in saying that? We were very successful. Uh, as you recall, the Green Band was announced by Jack Mundy at a public rally in Centennial Park. This was 1972, and we had something of the order of 5,000 people yeah. uh, come to that rally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we couldn't count on the weather being fine on the day, yeah. so in fact we planned two public rallies on the one day. Uh, one, uh, I think, about midday, in Centennial Park, mm. and then uh, that rally, 3,000 people went to the Sydney Town Hall, where yeah. we had a second rally, and they were different. The first rally, my wife prepared a skit with uh, a rededication of the park with Lord Carrington and Sir Henry Parks coming back from the dead, and they called on distinguished citizens to rededicate the park. Significant public figures joined forces to protect the park. There was theatre entrepreneur Harry M. Miller, naturalist Vincent Servanty, BLF leader Jack Mundy and authors Kylie Tennant and Patrick White, Nobel laureate. This was the first occasion on which Patrick White had delivered a public speech and he also spoke at the town hall, so he made two public speeches for the first time in his life on that day and uh, he was very nervous about it, but he was very good. Uh, Vincent Cervendi, Jack Mundy, Harry Miller, they all spoke on, on that platform. At the town hall, the rally was quite different. We were in very serious business of town planning, and uh, Neville Rand spoke. He was leader of the opposition at that stage. Jack Mundy spoke. But most importantly, we had five mayors from various parts of Sydney who had prepared alternative plans for an Olympics complex. And the critical one was missing, namely the one from Auburn Municipality where Homebush Bay is located. By the time park lover and Labor leader Neville Rand took government in 1976, Centennial Park was safely secured against the Olympic plans. Although Neil Runcie continues to lobby long and hard to protect the park from what he calls filching for such horrors as public car parks. But let's dig a little deeper into the soil, to the origins of this park which has inspired so much fighting spirit. What were the moral and physical drivers for its creation? 
We're now right in its heart, with the wilds of Lachlan Swamp on one side and one of the highly cultivated original Rosaria on the other. Paul Ashton is Associate Professor of Public History at the University of Technology, Sydney, and the co-author of Centennial Park, A History. There was a lot of formal planting in the park. Some of the park overseers write about local residents from Wallara and other places coming in and stealing plantings, in fact almost acres of small plants being stolen. So it may be some of the surrounding gardens in some of the lovely terraces and other places around the park have their origins in things that were planted here in the park. The columns that we see here, there's a couple of columns have come from the Australian Museum when it had an extension done in the late 19th century. And again, it's sort of adding didactic elements to the park. That's what the roses and the formal parts of the garden are with their plants that are labelled with Latin names and things like that are about didactic gardens that are there to educate and improve the general masses who had had when they came into the park to actually behave in a proper manner. Um, the park was very much ab about improvement. It had euthenic overtones in terms of the way uh, bylaws were created to control the way people moved around the park and what they did in it. Euthenics was around the same time as eugenics and eugenicists sought to breed out undesirable traits in human beings. It ended up becoming very fashionable for a while but then fell into disrepute when the Nazis took it to extremes. Euthenics was written about only for a short while in the late 19th and early 20th century and it was overshadowed by eugenics but eugenics was the, the nurture and environmental side of eugenics. So it was about improving spaces, putting beautification programs in place about improving urban environments, eradicating slums to make sure people had good environments in which they would develop decent morality and would respond positively and be active, creative um, citizens that didn't in become involved in political protests or um, become uh, social misfits that sort of thing. Was the more formal aspect of the park more widespread? Yes it was and in fact the park was modelled on a classic landscape genres such as there's picturesque and gardenesque. they're all blended in here. The formal driveways and walkways in the park were designed for people of importance to move through in their carriages where respectable middle and lower middle class people or working class people would walk along the footpaths in an orderly manner and watch their betters passing by and emulate their behaviours. It was articulated in things like bylaws, it was articulated by park directors such as Charles Moore who was notorious for imposing draconic order on the landscapes that he actually controlled and Centennial Park wasn't an exception. For example, you weren't allowed to congregate in Centennial Park in groups larger than 20. That was intended specifically to stop political organisations coming into the park and holding meetings and doing socially undesirable things. But large enough for a good picnic? Yes, yes, you still have a good picnic. 
There were, of course, already public gardens in Sydney. There was the Botanic Garden, Hyde Park and the Domain. But Centennial Park was different in its tremendous size and its purpose. North Sydney Council historian Ian Hoskins. Very early on there's a tradition in Sydney of appreciating parks. So Hyde Park is set aside for the people and, you know, there are officers charging around on their horses racing. There are all sorts of things going on in Hyde Park through the 19th century, fistfights. It's a hard-to-control place, even in the daytime, you know, and that causes concern for the powers that be. But it's recognised that it's important that there be this public space so that's reflective of a, you know, an appreciation of the rights of the people. That's not a late 19th century idea at all. It's, it's there early on. Botanic gardens grew out of a desire to develop a, a local botanical understanding and so vegetables were grown there, experiments done with introduced species and whatnot. But that grows into a public resort as well and it combines both those functions uh, in the way that the Centennial Park doesn't. That's very much a recreational space but the domain emerged out of Macquarie's, you know, private garden but he, he couldn't hold back the tides and subsequent governors opened it up, particularly Burke I think. Centennial Park um, is a park that's created at once so it hasn't developed organically in the sense that even the De Botanic Gardens has within Sydney Centennial Park is created and designed, you know, in 1887 and sort of um, looking very barren still in, in 1888, but it grows up into this design Victorian landscape. But it's there, I suppose, to fulfil a purpose for a growing metropolis. It's there on the outskirts. That's where the land is available. So there's an understanding that Sydney will grow and, you know, let's get the opportunity to build a, a beautiful park where we can do it. And, and this land is not highly valued. It was swampy. It was smelly, it was polluted from the tanneries and whatnot, so we can, we can do something about that. We can upgrade the land and it'll become the lungs of the city, much as Central Park was in, in New York. If you wander over from the Rosarium to Lachlan's Swamp, you move through groves of very old paperbark trees. Pools of water surface in the dark green grass. Birds call furiously, but there's a kind of hush underneath them. A denser thicket of paperbark creates a screen for some interesting illicit liaisons, but also hides a modest bubbling of water from under a rock. Catherine Evans is Senior Lecturer in Landscape Architecture, Faculty of the Built Environment at UNSW. Oh, here we are, the beginning of it all, really. But from, you know, very humble, small, discreet, quiet source, this is the beginning of all of the water in the Botany, in the botany Basin. So East Lakes, you know, the golf courses down there, it's all connected to this spring. It's literally bubbling up from under the surface right there. Under a rock. Yeah. With these ferns all surrounding it's quite yeah, um, dark and cool it feels a bit primeval in here mm. with the ferns and centennial park's very existence is largely due to the fact that it was set aside as the sydney common in 1811 for the, the purposes of supplying water to the city and because of the presence of the swamps it wasn't until 1827 that busby was commissioned, he was an engineer, John Busby, to create Busby's Bore, which went from Centennial Park into Hyde Park 
and to provide water for part of the city. Um, Busby's bore was a bit of a disaster. He didn't like convicts, so he didn't really supervise anything, and the bore itself goes from being a small tunnel to a cavernous three-metre-high tunnel at different points. Um, the scheme didn't really start operating until the late 1830s and uh, Busby gained the name the Great Boar uh, in the process. And <laughs> um, why was that? Because um, <clears throat> he was boring basically <laughs> and uh, he was also ridiculed by politicians and, and, and administrators because of his slowness in actually getting the scheme finished and it, it operated until the 1880s but by the the mid 19th century it was highly polluted people dumped refuse and dead animals into the parts of the swamps it was compared by a uh, an academic at sydney university in the the mid uh, 1850s it was compared to the, the witches brew in macbeth uh, but it still continued to supply water for a long time again up till 1887 when it was formally turned off um, just before the construction of Centennial Park started. King Budgeroo and his mates are forgotten in these centennial celebrations. The Sunday school children get a new shilling each, but the descendants of the ancient lords of the soil have not even an extra plug of tobacco. I wonder what these Aborigines watching the tram are thinking about. Stanley James, Melbourne Age, January 27, 1901. Prior to the Boar and the Sydney Common, the area of Centennial Park was a swamp which was likely to be an important hunting ground and then a campsite for displaced Aboriginal clans from the south coast. Aboriginal people formed a walking track along the northern boundary of Centennial Park, a track that the, the first fleet people walked down to the South Head to look for ships coming from overseas. And that track had been formed by um, Aboriginal people who had walked along the Sandstone Ridge. So Aboriginal people's movements and daily patterns of living are actually inscribed on Centennial Park today. But, they, but it didn't come anywhere near the swamp here? They may have come down to parts of it for fishing or for other purposes or just to get water, uh, but it would have been a place that they would have uh, uh, gone around and not through. Centennial Park was was a swampy, marshy area, no, and it would have been a natural, what we call today, a wetland. So there would have been ducks and all sorts of things there, and, and the, the Aboriginal clans, before the arrival of Europeans, I suspect would have used it as a hunting place. You know, it would have been a good place to kill ducks and maybe to get fresh water as well. It's in between Port Jackson and Botany Bay, and there was a lot of interaction between the Harbour clans and the Botany Bay clans as well. I mean, they're separate clan groups, but there was a lot of interaction between them, so it may have been on that route between the two places. Once the, the, the society around the Harbour clans collapses, and that happens very early on in the early 18th century, there are still a few people around the Harbour, there are a few people around Botany Bay, but the Aboriginal people who come to use that as a popular camping place in the 1860s, 70s and 80s are probably displaced Aboriginal people from the south coast, okay, who've been you know, kicked out of the land down there because of the spread of farming, and they've come up to Sydney. Some of them made their way even to Circular Quay, 
But then ultimately they get taken back down to La Perouse, and, that, and that's well known today as a, an Aboriginal um, place. So they would have been the people who were camping around the, the wetland because it's a fringe place, because it's an outland in a sense, and, and the Europeans don't value it terribly much. They were upset when those Aboriginal people are around Circular Quay because that's a place they do value, but you know they can live there until it gets turned into a civilised park and then their presence becomes problematic again and they're, they're asked to leave and they don't really have a place there, although I suspect a few continue on there, especially in the evening. Henry Parks, like most Victorians, assumed Aboriginal people would die out. It's likely he did not have them in mind when he made several speeches to the New South Wales Parliament about the role of the park in uplifting the masses. <clears throat> a national park in the highest sense, because it would be accessible to the whole mass of the people down to the very poorest class of the community. The wealthy people will use this drive and the people will congregate to look at them for a refining and an elevating effect. Henry Parks, as, as people may, may know, um, came out as an immigrant in the 1830s and he was a radical young man and he makes his name in, in colonial politics as a radical and becomes less radical as he goes along and, and enjoys the, all the symbols of empire and becomes a knight and is very proud of that. And he regards himself, it's fairly clear, as a, as a grand Victorian man. You know, that, that's how he presents himself. And Parks is a Liberal Democrat and he was that at the beginning and, and he's that throughout his political career. So he believes in the, the value of education and raising people up. I mean, he's not a conservative who believes that people are destined to stay in the social position that they're born in by any means. I mean, he's a good example for everyone of someone who's moved up through the social ranks, lower middle class. Yeah, he's an artisan um, as a toy maker, I suppose. And then he's up, you know, to one of the grand men of, of Australian politics. So he wants to bestow those possibilities on to, to other people, you know, and he's renowned for his uh, education reforms, I think 1880 or 1881, his big education reform act. For all the fancy words about social elevation, the creation of Centennial Park was a political act intended to memorialise Henry Parks as well as the centenary of colonisation. Historians joke he'd have liked to have called it Parks Park. Call it pork or park barrelling. In the few years before the centenary, 46 parks were dedicated. Prior to this, Sydney was lucky to get one a year. Being something you could open with considerable fanfare, parks were great for local MPs, and Sir Henry Parks intended to leave his mark on Sydney for good. The Victorian era suited him well, being a time for looking forward, but with an eye to marking history with grand gestures. Henry Parks wanted not only a vast park, but in its centre, a dramatic edifice. Ian Hoskins. In 1888, Australians started to consider the fact that they had been in New South Wales, in, in Australia, for a hundred years. Now, there was still clear in the mind of a lot of people a sense of the stain of a convict period. So looking to the past wasn't an edifying thing to do. A lot of people were embarrassed about that. You know, well into the 20th century, people don't, didn't want to admit to having convict ancestors. But it's around 1888 that that starts to change. And Henry Parks is one of the key figures in this, you know, and he, his idea for a centennial park, his idea for a museum and a mausoleum in the park is about his very Victorian 
notion that history is an important thing for formulating a, a people's identity, bringing people together. He's the one who coined the term the crimson thread of kinship, which is uniting white people in Australia with the British. And, you know, he's an imperialist. He's very proud of his British heritage. And history is the best way to do that. And discovering an Australian history too. But we're also looking to the future as well. So we've been here for 100 years. That's very significant. This is our land and we can look forward to a great future for Australia. And in a sense, the idea of planting trees represents that because they will grow up and will be appreciated by generations in in the future. But he also thought it would be an ideal, beautiful setting for a, a grand building that he called the State House, which would have within it a museum. So that's very much about history. And from then on, all the public documents that are being written and saved will be deposited in that museum and archive, as would the the belongings of great men such as himself, busts that were being carved at the at the time, they would be put in the museum. And it was also to be a mausoleum, for goodness sake, where the bodies of these essentially great men, rather than great women, I suspect, would be interred. So, I mean, what a an extraordinary amalgam of historical <laughs> artefacts <laughs> in, the, in the State House. It's, it's wonderful to think of that. And when you look at designs for it, it resembles, for the most part, something on the scale of St Paul's Cathedral in, in London. I mean, it's that big. Well, people in colonial New South Wales, I mean, some of them thought that was a good idea, but a lot of them are sensible enough to know that that's going to cost a million pounds. And what else can you do with a million pounds? So I always find it quite interesting reading debates in Parliament and, in, in fact, reading some of the newspapers because you realise how irreverent and matter-of-fact the debates were at the time. So there's a tendency, I suspect, to think about the Victorian era as um, a period where people loved statues and loved grand edifices and monuments, and they all respected that. In fact, you know, there was a critical mind being brought to these things at the time, and I find that quite interesting. It is inconceivable the influence a scene of beauty such as we might possess would have upon the whole country. Its graces would be scattered far and wide to the enhanced culture of the people. Larrikinism would receive its death blow. Anonymous, signed Clodhopper, letter to the editor, Sydney Morning Herald, August 2, 1887. Of course, Centennial Park is not one park, but two, existing in parallel. There's the daytime park of sport and families, friends and couples, rollerbladers, cyclists, walkers and dogs. Then there's the nighttime park. Its vast expanse provides plenty of hidden corners for those who know it as the Starlight Hotel. The lovers, the larrikins, the suicides, the murderers and their victims. Most infamously, Sally Ann Huckstep was horribly dragged into the park and murdered in 1984. But again, this dark history goes way back. This particular pond always strikes me as being a bit out of the way and it's, it always feels therefore a little bit more sinister. Is this one of the spots where unpleasant things used to happen? Yes, in this particular pond there were accounts in park annual reports of things like aborted foetuses being found wrapped up in brown paper and string. Um, there are a number of those from around the end of World War One into the 1920s and it, it is a little bit isolated and Bruce Park in Poor Man's Orange um, 
that talks about uh, about backyard abortion places, for example, and Surrey Hills isn't very far from here. So again, with abortions, this is a place where uh, young women or, or abortionists might actually get rid of a fetus by just leaving them in a lake. There are also instances of suicides in the park that are reported from before World War One right through the 1920s. There was one to two on average a year for around 20 years. Uh, again, the people that committed suicide in the park were found in relatively isolated spots. There were a couple that I remember particularly. Uh, one was a, a tradesman who seemed to be reasonably well off, who came into the park again on a, on a beautiful Sydney day after World War One, who was dressed in a, a black velvet suit and who shot himself under a tree. Their deaths are recorded in Glebe coroner's reports in very large ledgers. Very detailed descriptions are given of what the people were wearing, uh, the, the weather conditions particularly were, were uh, detailed quite fully. Why um, was that? At the time, there were th theories uh, coming out of sort of early psychology about connections between environmental weather conditions and people's states of mind and a lot of I would call quacks or correlated beautiful sunny Sydney days in, in spring or in autumn uh, with suicide. Uh, the theory was from some quarters that the splendid weather juxtaposed the depressed mental condition of the, the people who committed suicide to a point where they couldn't stand it any longer and they committed suicide. There's a fantastic quote in your book from somebody who writing to the Herald who, who declared that the park would end larrikinism forever. What was the issue with larrikinism at the time in Sydney? Larrikins got around in, in groups, they were basically gangs. They committed all sorts of social outrages, but they also engaged in criminal activity. They also carried knives and various weapons and could be quite brutal. And again, Centennial Park uh, was not intended to allow these sorts of people to undertake those sorts of disrupting activities. That they, uh, It was a place for respectability. How, how did they make that happen, though? Because you've got two other significant sites in Sydney at the time. You've got the Botanic Gardens and you've got the Domain and then you've got the creation of Centennial Park. So can you compare those three spaces in terms of how, how behaviour was controlled in different ways? Yes. The Botanic Gardens, like Centennial Park, had very strict bylaws right from the very beginning. Its first director, Charles Moore, enforced those bylaws very strictly to the point where a disabled person in a wheelchair was actually kicked out of the Botanic Gardens because they'd made wheel tracks in a path and there are various other instances of fairly draconic sort of enforcements of these. Centennial Park was actually controlled by the Botanic Gardens. Charles Moore. And Sir Charles Moore, it administered by it, and it had its own set of bylaws, but they were specific to the park and, and had a similar sort of intent is to stop 
any antisocial behaviour going on. The Domain, on the other hand, was a place where in the Depression, the 1890s and 1930s Depression, unemployed people went and slept and stayed in there. It was a place where people went in and spruked, where uh, political agitators got in and, and made um, speeches and roused people. So it, it was a space that was far less controlled. Uh, there were attempts to control it, but it, it was that, that sort of space where behaviour not allowed in Centennial Park or uh, the Botanic Gardens could go on. The, the debate about Australian identity in the 1880s is made extra complicated, not be, just because of the memory of the convict stain, but because in Sydney of a terrible rape case that happened in 1887, and there was the rape of a young servant girl, I think, and several boys used from Waterloo were found guilty and some of them were hanged. And that caused all sorts of inner reflection. Are we still the convicts that we were? Have we changed at all? You know, it was, a, it was one of those moments of crisis and, and moral crisis. Was it about a genetic, you know, ha, have we inherited a larrikin strain, if you like? It really raised questions in the mind of a lot of people whether Australians, you know, have become much more than the convicts they, they began as. I, mm. I, I suppose that's what the debate was. How was the park going to ameliorate the presence of larrikins in Sydney? Again, it's a very, in a very Victorian mindset, nature has a calming effect and it will ameliorate, it will lessen the intensity of the city. I mean, and again, you can experience that. There's some truth in that. You go into a, a beautiful big park and, and the noise of the city falls away from you. Well, the noise of the city, the smells, the coal smoke the intensity, you can imagine that that was as stressful for people living in the 19th century as it sometimes is for us today. You know, so to, to, to walk into a, a beautiful park is a calming thing. There's, there was real hope that that might, in fact, have a, a beneficial effect on morals. It seems to me that far too much of the flat and the wild native rocks are being blown to pieces and destroyed at much expense, where they would otherwise form a distinct and pleasing feature in the usual monotony of parkland. James Jones, Diary of the Head Gardener, 1887. Centennial Park was built in a hurry, started in 1887 to be in time for the opening in January 1888. Up to 400 unemployed men were mobilised and when the park was opened, it had been transformed from a swampy, sandy, polluted wasteland into a landscaped but bare environment. Sandstone rocks and ledges had been dynamited away and vast amounts of soil were brought in to cover the swamp under the directorship of Sir Charles Moore and his head gardener, James Jones. Little remains of the early plantings, which failed due to a lack of suitability for the climate and landscape. Catherine Evans was a consultant landscape architect in the 2001 Centennial Parklands Tree Master Plan. So we're in a really, another really special part of the park here where you do see a few sandstone outcrops right. and gum trees nestled in amongst. What is the significance of this area? Well, I know this area as the sandstone ridge or the sandstone ledge. And if we pause right about here and, and look south, 
It's hard to pinpoint it exactly, but when you look at the historic photographs, it's pretty clear that this northern edge of the park was really important as a viewing platform. It, and it makes sense because it's close to the city. People would have arrived at the park by tram or wagon and just gotten out here and paused here to look because we're human and we love a spectacle. And it can be very, it is very, very relaxing. And of course, in those days, this, there were no trees here. It was completely cleared and you could actually see Botany Bay and across Botany Bay. So it was, it was just stunning. And there were major events that happened just below us on what would have been lawn, but is now really a, more of a woodland. Catherine Evans can see the history of the park reflected in the trees that surround us as we stroll from the eastern edge and the top of the park down towards Lachlan Swamp. It's not the legacy of Charles Moore we can see. It's that of Joseph Maiden, who followed him as director in 1896. Maiden clearly loved his trees and frequently equated the life and health of a tree with that of a man. He described bad tree staking as tree torture and of the sin of tying a tree with wire such that it cuts into the stem, he says, There's only one remedy for this and that's the dismissal of the man guilty of it. One of the important patterns and characteristics of this park is that it is largely experimental. I think it always has been. Charles Moore was the first person to uh, set out a palette for the park, and a lot of his plantings didn't do very well, and so when Maiden arrived, he replanted. Uh, I will never forget reading something that Moore wrote, because he, he also was director of the, the Domain and Botanic Gardens for a while. One of his visions was that the um, entire eastern side of the Blue Mountains had to be stripped and reforested because the vegetation that was there was just so unsightly. So that's a real clue to how attitudes have, have changed. I think that you can actually read into the plantings of the, of the landscape here the, a really interesting history of changing attitudes towards native plants where Maiden was interested and concerned to use both native plantings and exotics. As time went on, well, there was a neglect of the park, really, from the 1930s until the 1960s. And from the 1960s, when Australia starts to become concerned about its treatment of its indigenous heritage, you start to see that expressed in, in this park through the planting. And so there are various attempts which date to the 1960s to insert and, and you might even say heal uh, the land here through the use of native plantings. First, let me earnestly recommend people to cultivate what is best in their districts. Let them grow the native trees. I'm not so foolish as to ask people to grow only native plants. Let us grow the best things available. But I feel sure that in this regard, people often go farther and fare worse. It may be news to some in New South Wales, we possess nearly 600 different kinds of native trees. And in this state are some of the most beautiful trees I've seen in any part of the world. Joseph Maiden 
tree planting for shade and ornament in New South Wales, with a special reference to municipal requirement, 1904 to 1922. He is responsible, largely responsible for the palette around the Grand Drive. It's important to understand that Maiden also has influenced the palette and the character of many landscapes across New South Wales. Across. Such as? Well, even as such as down at, at uh, La Perouse, I believe, in Long Bay, that wherever you see avenues of palm trees, think Maiden. But again, if you read through Maiden's reports and so forth, the idea of experimentation was, was very clear in, in his mind. He understood that this was a place that w was unfolding before our eyes, and, he, and they had no idea what would work. But he did know that they needed windbreaks to st help stabilize soil. So that's where he introduces belts of trees. So you have the belts of melaleucas. Um, he talks about using acacia trees as quote-unquote nursery plant, which is exactly what they are. The park never had a particularly cohesive design. On some levels it was very Victorian, structured with avenues and vistas, and now long gone statues. There were other influences flowing from America. In the end, the Australians did it their way, a bit of this and a bit of that. I think one of the reasons that we can't talk about that so decisively is that neither Charles Moore nor uh, maiden were designers. They, they were botanists. Whereas when we talk about the people who we know influenced them, particularly those who influenced Maiden, such as Frederick Law Olmsted, who designed Central Park and Prospect Park and the Emerald Necklace in Boston, he was both a designer, not a plantsman, but he was a sanitation engineer, a designer, a manager, a writer. Paxton, the designer of Birkenhead Park, was a designer and a, a plantsman. I credit Maiden really with most of what followed after Grand Drive was laid out. And he speaks, I think I use the term principles, rather than uh, setting out a design idea. Principles around the ideas of cleanliness, safety, relaxation, relief from the city, and those sorts of big, big ideas. But having said that, those principles aligned very, very strongly with the way Olmsted was thinking about parks. And so what, what were those ideas? They drew from the picturesque, and I think you, you can understand that best when you read the couple of lines that Maiden wrote describing the park as you know, a glorious depressed area that gave way to tremendous views. So he really had an appreciation for the importance of uh, the large spaces and the psychological benefit that viewing across those spaces provided. What, what was the picturesque? The picturesque is very much what it, what it sounds like and dates more to the 18th century and is really based on the idea that we would travel through the landscape enjoying a sequence of scenes as we traveled through. So the, some of the great estates in England, are, these are the landscapes that we think of as the picturesque, Stourhead, for example, was re, remade 
in the 18th century into basically a tour, almost a guided tour of, of that estate. I don't think that Maiden, because he wasn't a designer or more, really ha- understood as well as Olmsted did or Paxton how to set out areas to achieve the visual and aesthetic effect. Although users today would scarcely believe it, Centennial Park suffered a long period of neglect. Passed from one government department to another and regarded as a millstone around the neck of the Botanic Gardens. By the depression of the 1930s, there were just seven gardeners and 11 labourers, and then it was occupied by the army during World War II. In the 1960s, it had a staff of 23 to look after 194 hectares, compared to 50 staff for the 27 hectares of the Botanic Gardens. It remained derelict until the mid-1960s. It was the poor cousin. Um, The park had ultimately been transferred from the Department of Mines to the Department of Agriculture, and the Department of Agriculture had transferred its control to the Botanic Gardens because it didn't know what to do with it and didn't really care. The Botanic Gardens, in turn, was an institution that was scientifically orientated and was devoted to propagating species and and promoting horticulture through the, through the, the colony and through other colonies. So the Centennial Park became this millstone around its neck, cost a lot of money, they didn't know what to do with it, So, in fact, they started using it to propagate plants for the botanic gardens and for other functions. But when things were tough, uh, Centennial Park was the first institution to have cuts. Things got so bad during the Depression through World War II and into the 50s that the park became extremely run down. There were press reports in the 50s and early 60s of the borders of Centennial Park being derelict and unkempt. And it wasn't really until the 70s when it was transferred to the Premier's department that there was a major re-look at the park and and, um, significant funding was put into it. Of course, the park was brought back to life, just in time to become a place a community would want to save from rapacious developers and a state government with the Olympics in its sights, as we heard at the start of this program. So we'll leave the last words to park defender and Nobel laureate Patrick White as he muses on the park and its appeal. I suppose uh, I enjoy this view from the window personally because uh, this is the room I work in. I particularly enjoy the dawn over the park. You get wonderful sky effects, you get great heaps of ice cream cloud sometimes over the Waverley skyline. You get marvellous mist effects, not just smog, but strung out layers of mist, like in a traditional Japanese print. I enjoy later on hearing the birds come alive. And then we put seed out in the morning and we get all oh, swarms of little firetails, ordinary common garden doves and sparrows. And then in the afternoon, wrens seem to be afternoon birds anyway in this garden. Uh, wonderful little 
brown female wren. Sometimes they look like leaves blowing just across the surface of the ground.